Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Dana Goldstein went looking for a gap. She knew she would find it, and she did. But what she uncovered was bigger and more disturbing than she had imagined. The average American student is expected to lose seven months of learning because of the shutdown. And um, it could be closer to a full year for low-income students who are also disproportionately Black, Hispanic. So those are the types of gaps that we're looking at. Goldstein is a national correspondent for The New York Times who primarily covers education. And she's talking about an analysis which assumes that kids will spend part of the next academic year in physical school, but will also continue distance learning for part of the year. But how is it possible that kids who've been learning online for three months could fall so far behind academically? It would be combining that in a contiguous straight line with the summer learning loss that we deal with every year. Um, You know, a lot of people have reached out to me and said, how could this be true when so much of the end of the school year in public schools is devoted to testing and field day and all kinds of other special things? And while that's true, I think it's also important to remember what's going on in families lives during this time. We do have the potential for dropping up to a thousand times per day at our home. What's going on in Jenna Ruiz's life is that her ability to educate her son, Owen, is hampered by unreliable internet access. You want to talk about that a little, Owen? What's it like when you try to like watch your videos and stuff? Like it always like stopping my videos like I have to like take a break from it. Ruiz lives near Flint, Michigan, and says remote education has been hard to access. And as many parents head back to their jobs this summer and this fall, we're facing the makings of an impossible situation. I think the one thing to consider um, with the fact that families are going to have to try to navigate this as parents working. Like that's one of my biggest concerns is I have, you know, Owen who is six and we also have a three-year-old and I cannot imagine sending them to our normal babysitter who is my college cousin. She also launches my one or my two-year-old niece. So she'll have a two-year-old, a three-year-old, and then would have to teach a six-year-old classroom lessons all day. I don't see that being feasible. So then at that point I get worried, what am I going to have to do with my job? Dana Goldstein, the New York Times reporter says, this is where the gap comes in. Research indicates that the prolonged school closures that we've seen, they're going to have lifelong consequences for many kids. For almost half of American children, their state has not required any remote instruction. And data that existed before the pandemic showed kids who missed more school had a higher chance of dropping out. Goldstein says substantial numbers of kids are simply not engaging with online learning even when it's offered. I'd say I'm hearing the most concern about the two ends of the age spectrum. So the early childhood, say, preschool through age eight or so, and then also the older teenagers. It's really hard. And despite the age of the internet and being able to be connected to everyone more easily, it really does feel like we are disconnected. Brianna Meiser is 16 years old and she lives in Ware, New Hampshire. I think. For AP English and AP um, U.S. History, we had like a 90% um, rate of people showing up for classes, whereas with my honors math class, it was like 25 to 50% on a good day. So uh, there's definitely been a lack of engagement from a lot of people. Meiser says it's hard. Some kids don't have their own computers, despite efforts by the school to help distribute devices. 
The Center on Reinventing Public Education, based at the University of Washington, found that, quote, affluent districts are twice as likely as high-poverty districts to require live instruction. Twice as likely to require live instruction. Dana Goldstein found that gap was incredibly striking, even in the first grade. On one end of the spectrum, consider Chicago Jewish Day School, a private school that, when it came to live and copious instruction, was right out front. They logged on to Zoom, you know, around 9.30 in the morning, and they were basically there with a lunch break until 2.33 in the afternoon. They saw their teachers live. They had their specials, their gym, their art, their music, their language, and they were doing activities. The teachers had figured out how to use Zoom to break them into small groups for small group work, enrichment, tutoring, special help for those with special needs. It was really as close as you could get to a full school day. By contrast, Goldstein looked at a Philadelphia public school, which she notes was actually doing pretty well with remote instruction, comparatively speaking. They were spending about an hour with the students live uh, each morning in Google Classroom, and the rest of the activities were sort of more worksheet or compliance-based. And I think what links the two experiences is that you really do need an adult to help you uh, set this up and facilitate it. If you are a young elementary school student, you know, kids that age are not necessarily able to log on by themselves, to just keep track of everything that's going on, uh, their passwords, computer security features. Either way, you need a lot of parental involvement to make this work. So you had, on one hand, kids who got to see their teachers almost all the time versus kids, now remember we're talking about six and seven-year-olds here, who were left with worksheets and the task of scheduling their own day. And the problem, as Goldstein notes, is that if you want little kids to connect with their teachers, you need a parent or somebody to guide them through the technology required to make that happen. And at the Chicago private school, as at many other affluent, both public and private schools, parents doing their white-collar jobs from home were there to help. So when you know that parents are there all throughout the day to facilitate this, you can go ahead and provide this. But if the child is maybe with an elderly grandparent who's not tech-savvy or is being dropped off at a daycare for essential workers' children because, you know, mom is a medical assistant at a hospital treating COVID patients. They may not have that one-on-one assistance they need to take them through many hours per day of online instruction. So first of all, it's school's kind of awareness of the gaps and just limitations of what's going on at home during this crisis. I mean, of course, there's issues such as internet connection, whether you have a device that can handle streaming video, that was not a problem for any of the the families in the Chicago private school, unsurprisingly. I mean, the, the parents were typically working from home as nonprofit executives or attorneys or Um, those types of jobs. It's just very different if the parent's out of the house. And maybe in more um, working class families, there are many siblings, you know, there could be three children that are all using one device Mm -hmm. to get online and do remote learning. So one of the reasons why the schools didn't expect that much instructionally from teachers is because they didn't think the kids were going to be able to access it. And were the schools right in that sense that a lot of kids really couldn't access even what was offered. 
Yes, I mean, we heard from teachers throughout the past few months that we've interviewed, as well as parents who are participating, especially in, you know, diverse schools, that typically like about half of students were participating in the live meetings that were being required. (laughs) So I think that sort of begs the question, well, if only half are participating, what is the right thing to do? Is it to sort of redouble efforts to help those other students find their way online? Or is it to kind of step back and, you know, provide less and expect less? What we saw this semester was that many, many schools did step back and they did expect less of students and families and teachers and they provided less. Now, Mm -hmm. I think as educators are realizing like, intermittent closures could extend into the following school year because the threat from the pandemic continues. Schools may open, but on partial schedules, or they may shut down when a case crops up to sort of decrease the risk of transmission. Now teachers are telling me it's time to ramp back up again. We have to figure Mm -hmm. out a way to continue to teach. And we actually do need to hold students accountable and parents accountable for getting their kids, quote, to school. We recognize this was a very sudden, very unexpected crisis. But now we've had a few months to think about this and kind of we can't just ease up and lose more time because the other thing we're starting to see is sort of achievement gaps widening and all students even very privileged students are falling behind academically because of this lack of direct instruction and teaching. You know, it's, I talked, um, oh gosh, maybe a couple months ago now, several weeks ago anyway, to Michael Osterholm, who's a expert on pandemics at the University of Minnesota. And I remember saying, uh, you know, to him, as he said, you know, I think this could be with us for two, three years. Well, gee, do you just bring your second grader home and you send them back to school in fourth grade? And he was like, no, I don't think that's a good idea. And, you know, I think that people's initial thought was, oh, this will be a few weeks, maybe a couple months. And it sounds like you're hearing people say, whoa, actually, maybe bring in a kid home in second grade and actually have them really doing work again, starting in fourth grade is not the way we want to go. No, and and I don't think any epidemiologists or public health experts are suggesting that at this point. In fact, I think the conversation has moved to recognizing that students do need to go back to physical school and that it's not going to be a risk zero proposition for children or for the adults that work in the school, but the risk can be mitigated. There is some hopeful evidence that children are not sort of the vectors for contagion that we thought they were at the beginning of this crisis. Yes, they can get COVID-19, but they may not be as highly contagious as adults are. So what has happened the past few months, which is that students, some students have lost up to a year of their expected learning because of this crisis. Um, This probably should not continue. (laughs) You know, something has to give. Either we accept some public health risks and individual health risks to get our children back in school, or we have to use the summer to get much better very, very quickly at remote learning. And probably both of those things need to happen simultaneously. When you talked about um, that this is particularly difficult for Black and Latino students in terms of setting them back uh, educationally, do you t- chalk that up to um, resources like people do not have, uh, you know, Wi-Fi hotspots or, or you know, you were saying before, like you might have a family with several kids, they're all sharing one device? Or is that more about 
who's at home, who's available to like guide you through the math problems. Yeah, so this is a really important point. The census sent out a household survey to look at how much time families are spending on remote learning, and there are not big racial or income gaps in the amount of hours. Across racial groups and income groups, we see parents spending 10 to 14 hours per week on assisting their kids with remote learning. Wow, that's a lot. So everybody is basically bent over their kid's shoulder being like, here's what you do next or something. Yeah, yeah. Black parents are actually spending a little bit more time than some other groups um, working on this. So this is not about um, different values about how important school is. That is not what this is about. And I want to say that because sometimes when you talk about this, you get uninformed and ignorant comments back um, from readers of, of my work. But there are income and race-based disparities and access to, you know, I would say the three ingredients that you do need to make those hours very effective, depending on what the school is offering. And those would be the device, the strong internet connection, and the adult who is tech savvy, who can just sit side by side with the students. So if elderly grandma is watching while nurse mother is at the hospital working, that grandma may be a wonderful caretaker, but is not the best equipped person (laughs) to help the child Mm. inside of Zoom or Google Classroom because these pieces of software are complicated. A lot of us are still getting a grasp on them in our professional lives for remote work, let alone helping a six or seven-year-old through it. So there's a lot of factors that are going into this here. From the school side of the equation, it's also important to hold schools accountable here. Some teachers unions resisted the call to conduct live real-time classes online, saying that teachers shouldn't be expected to do that because they were home themselves without childcare for their own kids, Right, right. which I, I think we're all sympathetic to. But again, it's a question of This is essential work, and everybody has now had some time to get used to this new reality. If it continues in the fall, are we going to continue to say that teachers don't need to be online at specific times, you know, to interact live with students? Those are, you know, important questions to ask. Let me ask you, are we going to say that? Can you imagine a world in which the gap just grows and grows into the fall? Because let's say mm, there's a spike in infections. And so governors say you should stay home harder all of the time. And, you know, you get your private schools that are online three, four hours a day doing, you know, individual stuff with math and, and language and so on. And you have other schools where kids just they either don't offer it or the kids don't log on. Yes, I unfortunately I could see the gap growing further and part of the reason is that schools are so overwhelmed right now with what they're being asked to do with not a lot of money. Um, the economic downturn that has resulted from the pandemic is leading to significant budget gaps for schools. At the same time, schools are being expected to install new sinks and get personal protective yeah. equipment for staff and right. face masks, gloves, hand sanitizer to get the capacity to take people's temperatures before they get into the building or erect barriers to keep parents, you know, socially distanced at drop off. There's so many costs associated with the hope of reopening physically and so much planning that's going into that, that if we do end up shutting down more and doing more remote learning, it may be that school administrations have just poured 
all their effort into trying to reopen the buildings and we're back where we started with subpar online instruction that's not working for many, many children. Well, if you step back, I mean, you talk to people from all over the country. Do you have the sense that, in fact, um, the money is going into hand sanitizer and masks and temperature checks at the door um, and that we are not ready uh, for we are not ready for sort of school in the fall in an academic way? Yes. My sense right now is that with what schools are focusing on over the summer, when schools are closed, they are spending more time focusing on reopening the physical plant than they are with improving online instruction, which could end up looking short-sighted next year. Hmm. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking to Dana Goldstein. She's a national correspondent for The New York Times who covers education. She's been looking at the deep impact and the really deep inequities, too, that have come from keeping kids out of school for the past few months. Let's take a quick break here. We will talk more about what the future holds in just a minute. You can find links to Dana's work as well as to many of the studies that we have talked about on the achievement gap that's opening up as classes have moved online. That's all at innovationhub.org. From WGBH Radio and PRX, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I do miss regular school. I miss the real life interaction with my educators. Some of my educators are some of my greatest friends. Jenna Maker is a rising high school senior from Hunter, North Dakota. And I really miss that. I miss that aspect of it. And I think those relationships in person are what create a great school or what create a great educator or what create a great environment to learn in. So not having that was quite difficult. I wouldn't say any of the teaching styles changed at all, but I would say the relationship part of it and not being able to physically interact with everybody every day was very weird and threw me off quite a bit. Maker left school, along with more than 50 million other K-12 students, in March, and the dislocation left its mark. High school dropouts are expected to rise in the coming years. Lifetimes of earning potential might be impacted. Many students have lost months of learning already, and poor and minority students are projected to lose more, something like an entire year if kids don't return to physical school till the winter. And rural students, like Jenna Maker, have faced unique obstacles. The Center on Reinventing Public Education found that only about one in four school districts in small towns and rural areas expect teachers to provide any instruction. Though Maker says her district made incredible efforts to help kids out. If we didn't have internet, then the school either tried their hardest to provide you with internet or you got your homework by bus. So Monday mornings, the buses would run their usual time, usual bus route, and they would drop off your homework that you had for the entire week, 
And then if you had any from the week prior, you would also hand it in via the bus. I think the overall thrust of what's going on in the education world nationwide is educators want to reopen. Dana Goldstein is a national correspondent for The New York Times, and she's been covering education during the pandemic. You know, there's a sense that this has been sort of an unmitigated disaster and we ought to get the the doors open again and look, we're not going to punish parents if they decide they're more risk averse and don't want to send their children, but we ought to be there for for those families that want their child to be there. So that's the thrust. Maybe so, but the problems facing schools are considerable. Will governors allow them to be reopened? Will parents feel okay taking on some degree of risk? And ultimately, how can you compare reductions in caseloads with loss of learning and opportunities. One thing you've got to keep in mind, Goldstein notes, is that the longer schools are closed, the higher the costs get. And it's not just the pain of lost learning sort of set in contrast to the pain of COVID-19, but it's also the emotional, mental health, um, pain Mm -hmm. of social distancing, which we're not exactly sure how it impacts all of us, especially kids. But, um, you know, kids whose parents are in economic distress at this time are going to potentially have extra mental health stuff to deal with. But all kids may have extra mental health issues to deal with from social distancing. And, you know, I'm saying this as a parent, too, who has observed my daughter actually adjust surprisingly quickly to not being able to play with other children. Now I'm asking myself, like, well, oh, my goodness, what does this mean for her (laughs) that she has adjusted to it? You know, she now sometimes whines that she doesn't want to go outside now that it has become safer to go outside. I mean, it's truly mind boggling (laughs) how this will impact kids. So yes, I think every thoughtful person um, in public health and in public education is talking about this quite explicitly. There are articles you can read and arguments you can see in all directions. The Times recently did a survey of hundreds of public health experts and um, infectious disease experts, and a great number of them agreed that that schools and children's activities should be among the first places where we relax these restrictions because children have one childhood (laughs) and you know a year in the life of a six or seven year old is very different than the year in the life of a 35 year old like me for example in terms of you know how big it is for, for them versus for us that's right So to that point, um, there are a number of countries that did restart schools this spring. Um, Denmark went in April. Japan restarted in May. A bunch of other countries. Um, I assume they did that because they really prioritize learning. They often opened up those places, uh, opened up schools before other things like restaurants. I wonder why that didn't happen in the U.S. Because I did hear governors say, we desperately want want to open schools and then it did not happen. I just wonder what you think. Well, I I think the first thing to say is that our course on the virus is not where even Europe is. They experienced their spike previous to us. So I think it makes perfect sense that we haven't reopened here and in fact lost our spring uh, semester pretty much here. Um, I will say that we need to continue to watch the European experiment of reopening very carefully. We're going to start seeing some numbers from the um, resumption of childcare in school in places like France and Italy, and we need to get a better grasp on whether this will increase the transmission rate 
there will be little hot spots that crop up if schools reopen. Yeah. I don't think we should have our head in the sand about that. Mm. But we can tolerate as a country and as actually what will be 50 states <laughs> making this decision, you know, a few hot spots potentially, given that um, most children experience the virus without severe issues and also that it looks like kids don't pass it that aggressively to adults. So we're not necessarily looking for the sensational stories like a whole school in France had to reshut down or a whole town had to reshut down, but we want to see big big numbers as big as possible like a whole a whole country hopefully right, right. will be able to see over the summer what happened in some of these European nations so we can make, you know, a more informed choice. But it's also important to note, you know, if the contact tracing and the testing ability is not up to par in specific regions of the United States, the European experience may not hold much information for us because they have, you know, shown over the past six months that they're better able to track what's going on in their countries than we are in ours. Um We've seen in recent days um, discussions about kids going to school part-time in the fall, which might be semi-workable if you've got a white-collar computer-based job that you can do from home. Um, But I don't know how in the world that works out for people who drive buses or work in stores or cook in restaurants. They just say to their five- and seven-year-old, I'll see you at six. You know, like, I don't know how that can possibly work for people who have in-person jobs. Yeah, I mean, they're going to have to come up with the same types of arrangements they've been using for the past couple of months, which is often relying on neighbors, friends, family uh, to do that essential work. Um, But maybe instead of relying on those folks for five days a week of care, it would be two days or three days and the other days the child would be at school. So I do think staggered schedules are are highly likely. Um, You know, I'm talking to you from New York City today. We're a hot spot. We've already been told by our preschool that although we signed up for five days a week, we may be getting a staggered schedule. So, uh, you know, for our family, that will mean, you know, babysitting the rest of the time, which is totally doable for us. But yes, like this is a huge crisis for people who don't have that um, income to be able to do that. So when you think about this going forward, and we've talked about schools planning for the fall, um, what would you say your biggest concerns are that, you know, if, if you're, if, if somebody who is leading a school was listening to this, a teacher at a school, um, even a parent who's voicing their concerns to schools, what would you say about getting ready for the fall and next year? And gosh, who knows, maybe the next two years. Yes. I mean, I think the first thing I'd say is to not let the excitement about reopening physical school distract you completely from um, the ability to make sure that when students are home, whether on a staggered schedule or, you know, God forbid, more full-time closures, that they are able to learn. So I think that means redoubling efforts to get devices and internet connections into homes that don't have them. If a caretaker is with a child um, who is not tech savvy, there can be work done over the summer to provide tutoring to that adult. And there are some nonprofits that are forging ahead with attempting to do that. We need school districts to be partners. And then one thing I want to mention is sort of the lost kids. And this is probably the saddest aspect of it. And as a reporter who has been quarantined or socially distanced myself for the past two months, one of my frustrations is I haven't been able to find these kids because teachers and schools can't find them. But in many more... um, 
mixed income districts, big cities like New York and LA, we're hearing that about 15% of kids are lost, which means they are not in touch with their school at all. They have not participated at all in what's being provided and the school has called and written and emailed and they're out of touch. So we need to, you know, use our social workers, counselors, teachers to find those students because those are the kids that are going to fall the most behind. Do you think governors are thinking about the kinds of questions and issues that we have talked about? Or are they just so overwhelmed by things like, you know, hospitalization rates and getting personal protective equipment to, to first responders? And like, are they just so overwhelmed with trying to deal with the virus that they haven't gotten to, to what we're talking about with education? I think school is a huge concern for every governor in the country right now. I I think they probably think and talk about it with their teams every single day. Now they have to deputize the expertise on this and they have to deputize a lot of the decision making and moving forward. But this is in some states, more than half of the state budget is education related. This is, you know, one of the primary responsibilities of states in our federal governance structure. It's not a federal government issue. It is a state and local government issue. So a completely shut down education system is a is a government failure. This pandemic was not perfectly predictable. It caught most of us by surprise. Yes, there were those who did warn about the potential for something like this. I think the vast majority of our leaders did not prepare. Now that we're in um, June from a crisis that, you know, was started in Asia in December, January, the excuses are not as salient as I think that they were a few months ago. We have got to find a way to continue educating children through an experience that we don't know right now how long it will be. As you say, we could be in a three-year experience seeing this out to its end and I really don't want to believe that that is what this will be, but we have to listen to the the virus experts who are warning that it could be that. Dana Goldstein is a national correspondent for The New York Times covering education and the pandemic. She's also the author of The Teacher Wars, A History of America's Most Embattled Profession. Dana, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. And if you want to let us know how you think schools should proceed from here during this pandemic, we'd like to hear your thoughts. What have your kids lost? What have they gained? Our email is innovationhub at wgbh.org.